Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSilicast podcast, hosted at PodFeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, October 13th, 2019, and this is show number 753. This week, Steve and I took all of our kids and the grandson to Disneyland for a two-day extravaganza. I was able to relax, run tens of thousands of steps per day, chasing Forbes around, making Steve ride It's a Small World, and having an overall jolly good time because of two people. Joe Duganzik of Smarter Home Life, who you've heard from before, sent in a review of the DJI Osmo Pocket, and for the first time on the big headphones, we've got a review from Jill McKinley. When you hear her review, you'll think she's been doing this professionally for ages. She even had enough fun doing it that she's already planning on doing more, bought a new microphone, and I'm excited to hear what she comes up with next. However, with all that fun and frivolity, I didn't get around to recording a chit-chat across the pond, I'm afraid. But let's dig in and listen to Jill. Hello, I'm Jill from the Northwoods. I've quietly listened to Allison and Bart for years. I work for a software company, and I used to be a system administrator. I love learning how to use gadgets and software to its fullest to make life better and more enjoyable. I heard somewhere that sleep tracking was stupid, but I learned a lot from my two years of tracking. I used to have insomnia for over 35 years. I solved many of my problems about five years ago with a few technologies, but that's a story for another time. This is about sleep tracking. After the insomnia was fixed, I started sleeping seven to eight hours a night, which is great, but I still woke up very tired in the morning and I wanted to understand why. I tried a few sleep tracker apps and learned a few things. In March of 2018, I switched to Sleep Cycle, and here's why I switched. It keeps track of sleep quality, sleep time, and heart rate, like most sleeping apps will. It integrates with automatic diary app Life Cycle, which I also use. It allows for personal tags so I can track the things I want to track. It also tracks location of sleep, so I can figure out where I'm sleeping better and worse. It will listen to snoring. I live alone, so I often wondered if I snore, and it turns out I do. My cats never told me. Activity is measured in steps. I find this to be a poor measure of activity, and I wish they would change that. I row and bike quite a bit, but my steps can be very low. It will correlate sleep quality with the mentioned data points that I just talked about. With a premium subscription, it will also compare weather, air pressure, moon phase, day of the week. But keep in mind, these are correlations and are not necessarily cause and effect, but it's a good place to start for troubleshooting. Here's what I learned from the experience. I noticed that I toss and turn quite a bit. My bed was very old and I would often wake up sore. I bought a new bed and I got a platform that tilts at the feet and the head with a remote. With a slight head angle, I fixed a lot of my snoring issue and my back. The app scored this as a 6% improvement. I still was waking up at 3 in the morning, so I set an alarm one night at 2.45 a.m. and I found that I had a very noisy water softener. I changed the scheduled time for the recycling process, and now I don't wake up. But I still was getting up sometimes, so I used my watch to record the reason Mostly, I never remember getting up in the middle of the night, and I certainly don't remember why. Turns out, I was drinking too many liquids too late at night. I slept poorly away from home. I travel for work, so I can't really fix that. 
Turns out I sleep terribly in Iceland and India. In LA and Detroit, it was pretty terrible too. I figured those were big cities and also very noisy, so now I get a higher room. That fixed some of the problem, but I think the fans and the other noises can't be stopped. I won't even tell you how I fixed my hotel thermostat from beeping incessantly. I sleep best at home, but Seattle and North Platte, Forks, not so bad. Who knew? I slept poorly when the weather was clear and when the moon was full, but I slept a bit better when the pressure was low and there was less moon. I think this was a light problem, so I got an eye mask, and that helped quite a bit. I used to think that I slept best in the morning hours. It turns out I sleep best right after going to bed, and it gets worse the closer we get to morning. I use other technologies to help me get to bed earlier and to help me to fall asleep sooner. If you use the Lifecycle app, it will measure daytime activity with your sleep. It turns out that I sleep great when I hike, bird watch, and go to church. I sleep better when I shop, but I think that's really a correlation with the weekend. Now, I know a lot of these items are involved in best practices, like not drinking before bed, fixing light issues, and exercising. But it did teach me about my own sleep patterns and a few things that were and were not issues. I sleep great now, and I feel awesome in the morning. I no longer track sleep, but I'm grateful for the experience. I'm a troubleshooter at heart, so I'm very happy with this process. Sleep Cycle has other features. It can wake you up when you're at your lightest sleep levels, within your threshold, close to your alarm. I use this to help me exercise in the morning. It can also use Hue lights to give you a sunrise-like experience. The Hue app also does this, but because this is tied to your sleep patterns, I think it's a little bit better. It has some sleep aids, which I've never tried, mostly because I'm in love with another app's sleep aids. I used their support, and their support was friendly and informative. I didn't really have a problem, but I had questions, and they were great. I hope you enjoy the story of my sleep tracking experience. It really was great. But don't forget, stay subscribed, and consider helping Allison and Bark by becoming Patreon supporters. I did. I hope you will, too. Thank you very much. Well, I got to tell you, I love Jill's review on so many levels. I have to love it for her gentle challenge to my article on why I think sleep tracking is stupid. She also clarified something for me that I didn't really, I don't know, I just didn't think about it before. And it's that there's a difference between insomnia and poor sleep. I gathered from what she said that insomnia must be the, the not being able to get to sleep or stay asleep. But poor sleep is where you sort of thought you were sleeping, but it's not good quality sleep. I never really thought about that before. Now, I do have to give her a hard time because a part of what she figured out was you need to go to sleep earlier. That's one of the things I love mocking people about on trying to figure out how to get better sleep. But I got to I got to step back from that mocking because she had more data than the obvious silliness of that. It wasn't that she was able to be in bed longer. It was that the earlier sleep was the better sleep because of what she'd been able to measure. I loved seeing her trend lines go down over the course of a year, showing her sleep quality improving because she was going to sleep earlier. That was very, very interesting. Probably the coolest thing she figured out was that noisy water softener waking her up at the same time every night. That was brilliant. Now, my main reason for saying sleep tracking is stupid is that just sleep tracking is stupid. But that wouldn't have made as fun of a title. By her pairing of NorthCube's sleep cycle tracking app 
with her life cycle app to, to note the changes that she was making in her daily life, that really starts to resemble a closed loop system. And that is not in any way stupid. Like I said up front, I hope Jill does a lot more reviews with us. Still, on the subject of sleep tracking, S. Tim and our Slack group at podfeet.com slash Slack wrote something really interesting in response to my article about thinking that sleep tracking is stupid. You remember that I said, uh, if you, why do you need to slap, track sleep to be able to tell yourself you're not sleeping well because you wake up tired? S. Tim gave me some valuable insight. Here's what he wrote. I also think that the quantified self often reveals things more to certain types of people other than others. Allison, I'm not surprised that you'd be more self-aware on a lot of fronts. I find people with engineering backgrounds are often attuned to things like this. But to take a related example you gave, it should be obvious to most people if they're consuming a ton of calories every day and thus gaining weight. But it's amazing at how good we are at telling ourselves that our habits are normal until we're faced with hard data, whether that's calories consumed, steps taken per day, or quantity of restful sleep. Some people are more alert when they wake up at night, while I've certainly known more than a few who had no idea they were waking up multiple times at night or even getting up. So I think good sleep tracking can definitely be useful to point out a problem that an individual is either oblivious to or just minimizing as normal. You know, oh, everyone is tired when I'm feeling is within a standard deviation of the mean kind of thinking. All right, STM, I love that you're so nerdy in the way you answered that, but... uh you know, I got to say, I'll never stop being amazed that everyone's not exactly like me. I, I actually have thought about that a lot over the years because it's only occurred to me recently. So anyway, thanks for pointing out that it might be the engineer in me that makes me analyze and think about these things. I do think finding out you have interruptions in your sleep is interesting, but if it doesn't get matched to any input data, there's nothing you can do about it. And that's why I thought it was stupid. If you really want to learn more about why you're not getting quality sleep, it sounds like Jill has found some great apps to figure it out over at North Cube. My father grew up during the Great Depression, and as a result, he became quite a bit of a scavenger. If he found something interesting like, I don't know, a screw or a nut on the ground, it was quite likely to come home in his pocket. Late in his working career, he was making a really good living. We lived in a fancy house in a nice neighborhood, and yet my dad would walk the alleys behind his office complex digging through the trash to see if he could find anything good. He said that the dumpsters behind office buildings have great stuff. When First Capital Companies moved off of Century Boulevard, they threw away all of their letterhead pads of paper. My dad rescued this perfectly good scratch paper and brought them home. That was 25 years ago, and I'm still using these pads for my scratch paper. In fact, I took notes for my programming by stealth homework on it just last week. Now, while I did not grow up during the Depression, growing up under my dad's influence, I pick up things off the street that others might consider trash. You know those little cylindrical pins you use to hold up shelves and cheap furniture and how you never have enough of them? I found a box of them broken open on the street, on the street one day. Score. Now that I've set the groundwork for why I pick up junk on the street, I can tell you a tech story about this habit of mine. On a recent walk, I found the perfect solution. I found a small, plain cardboard box on the side of the road that said digital doorbell on the top. I opened it up, and inside were two plastic pieces with their plastic peelies still intact, showing it was brand new. One piece is simply a big button with a bell on the front and no other distinguishing characteristics. The second piece plugs into the wall. Now, how could I not bring this fabulous treasure home? What would my father have thought of me if I didn't? I brought it home, 
plugged in the one piece and pushed the button on the other, and I was rewarded with a fabulously loud and annoying doorbell sound. In fact, I think I will uh, have my able assistant, Steve, ring that doorbell right now while I'm recording. Are you ready? (laughs) Isn't that glorious? Steve, do it again. I talked over a little bit of it. Anyway, delighted with my new toy, I showed it to Steve. Now, at first, he was not as excited as I was, and he asked me, what on earth do you plan on doing with this? Well, my first thought was to give it to our three-year-old grandson, Forbes. I figured he could put the chime inside his room with the doorbell button outside the door and insist that his parents request entry into his room from now on. But then I thought of a better idea. You remember I told you I came up with the perfect solution? Now, let's set up the problem to be solved. I happen to be enormously spoiled. Steve not only does the grocery shopping, he also makes dinner every night. He actually took the job over from me voluntarily when we retired. I gotta tell you, I didn't object too much. Usually I'm up in my studio writing articles for the podcast when dinner is ready. Steve wanted a way to give me a five-minute warning, and then if I didn't show up, a dinner's ready alert. We do have a lovely 1990s-era home intercom system, but for some reason in 2019, we seem to forget that it's there. Plus, low-tech, right? Well, the obvious solution was to use the walkie-talkie feature built into the Apple Watch. Most people think this is a dumb tool, but it's actually fabulous. Wherever he is, wherever I am, he can ping me and let me know my teriyaki salmon is ready. Except for the part where walkie-talkie only works about 83% of the time. It's just reliable enough that we keep trying it, but just unreliable enough to drive, drive us nuts. Now, I realize that my fancy high-tech doorbell could be the perfect solution to this problem. I plugged the chime into an outlet in my studio and gave Steve the portable button. Now, when it's five minutes till salmon delivery, he pushes the button. There is no way I could miss the sound of this chime from anywhere upstairs. It has totally solved our problem, and it makes me laugh every single time because it is such a dumb little thing, and I found it on the street. Anyway, on the side of the uh, part that you plug in, the chime, there are two buttons. One is for volume and one is for the ringtone. Discovery of the volume button was quite welcome because I would often be quite surprised when this crazy doorbell went off right next to me. You can set it to four volume levels and even mute it entirely. This still works because there's a bright blue ring that lights up when the chime goes off. That's also great for the hearing impaired. I am bummed about the ringtones, though. I was super excited at first because there are tons and tons of different tones, from Winchester chimes to Fury Lease. I can flip through them with the button, but sadly, they don't stick. Pushing the doorbell button goes right back to the ding-dong sound. Well, now I bet all of you are wondering where you too could get a fabulous doorbell for inside your house. Sadly, the box is so nondescript that I haven't found an exact match. But the sticker on the side did give me a clue that this product was originally even cooler than what I found. The sticker says, quote, wireless doorbell, comma, F dot 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 R plus three receiver white. Now that cryptic message suggests that there were actually three receiver units originally inside this box. This means that if we can find it, the chime could ring all over your house. I did some of the Googles, and while I didn't track down the exact device I found on the side of the road, I found several that looked pretty close. On Amazon, the, there's the Bowie, I'll get it right, Bo Ying, that's B-O-Y-I-N-G, and of course there's a link. Anyway, the Bo Ying wireless doorbell with two chimes and one button for the grand sum of $12. 
I know, I know, mine's better, free is better, but $12 isn't too bad, and you get twice as many chimes as I found. If $12 is too rich for your blood, Bo Ying makes a set with only one chime for $11. Now, you may not have the same problem to solve that I did. You know, not everybody is lucky enough to have a salmon-making wonder husband, but there are lots of use cases for this. Maybe you have an elderly parent living with you, and you'd like to know that they could ask for your assistance, even if you're in a distant part of the house. Maybe you have a shop in the garage, and when your child can't figure out where you are, she could ring the bell. I started this out as a very silly story that made me giggle, but this little device for under $15 is pretty darn cool. I think you want to hear Steve ring that bell just one more time. You want it, Steve? (laughs) Do you remember what Jill said at the end of her review? I'll quote her again in case you forgot. She said, Don't forget to stay subscribed and please consider helping Allison and Bart by becoming a Patreon supporter. I did, and I hope you will too. Now you might wonder how you too can join up to Patreon to show your support to Bart and me. You can become a patron of the Podfeet podcast by going to podfeet.com slash Patreon. Bart does a couple of must-listen podcasts over at his site, lets-talk.ie, and after you subscribe to both of them, One's on photography and one's on Apple News. There are some big blue buttons. One of them will take you to his Patreon page so you can start supporting his work as well. And another great shout out to Jill for being a patron. So you've heard about those camera gimbal gizmo things, right? Maybe you've even seen them out in the wild and thought they were pretty cool. But still you think... I have the iPhone 11 Pro Max with three cameras on it, and Tim promised that it would be the best video experience I've ever had. So why would I get one of those gimbal things? Because really smooth, stabilized video. Hey, this is Joe Deganzik from Smarter Home Life, and I myself recently bought one of those camera gimbal gadgets, specifically the DJI Osmo Pocket, for a big project I'm currently working on. In fact, the project itself and my purchase of the Osmo Pocket is directly related to another project that I worked on with Allison and Steve just about a year ago, but more on that later. So what are these camera gimbal things anyways, and why should you even consider getting one? Well, to start, let's talk a little bit about video stabilization. For several years now, most of the higher-end smartphones on the market have had their internal camera systems mounted on microscopic rigs that enable the camera to move up and down and left to right while you're taking a video on your phone. This is called optical or sometimes mechanical image stabilization since it's done in the camera. Monitoring the accelerometers and gyros on your phone, the camera will do its best to counteract any shaky movement while you're taking a video with your phone by moving the camera in the opposite direction of any small movements. It can also improve the process of taking individual photos and prevent accidental movement. This can definitely help in low-light environments or when you're shooting something really up close. Most smartphones pair optical image stabilization with a little bit of software, or electronic image stabilization. Ever notice that the image tends to zoom in a little bit when you switch from photo mode to video mode on your smartphone? This is to enable the video frame to be moved around the larger size of the actual image sensor to automatically counteract camera shake. 
And of course, it does help that the image sensors in smartphones have generally been able to take much higher resolution photos than videos, thus allowing electronic stabilization to be added in the first place. Before optical image stabilization came into being on smartphones, electronic image stabilization was the only way to go. If you've ever heard the term pan and scan as it relates to movies, electronic stabilization is actually a similar but automated concept. So the overall goal of optical and or electronic image stabilization is to help create video that looks like it wasn't shot by you holding your camera with one hand out the driver's side window of your car trying to capture what you thought was a beautiful flock of geese taking to the skies from a perfectly green grassy field. In super slow motion, of course. And as it turned out, they were actually oversized pigeons and you need new glasses. So then what's the difference between your phone and its stabilized cameras and a camera gimbal? Or even one of those gimbal things that you can mount your entire phone itself into? Well, it removes your potentially shaky hands nearly entirely from the video making process. But it's not quite a Steadicam either. Steadicams are large, expensive, wearable camera rigs commonly used in film and television production. Think about those long walk-and-talks from the West Wing. And they use counterweights instead of electronics to smooth out the movements of a camera operator with a giant film camera strapped to their chest. Now, while there are gimbal devices that can accommodate your own smartphone, and yes, I've tried one, I'm focusing on the DJI Osmo Pocket. It's an all-in-one unit with the camera already mounted on its three-axis motorized gimbal, and it has a touchscreen and most all of the stuff that you'll need in one compact gadget. It's from the guys who popularized drones, DJI, and who also started making their own cameras a few years back. A gimbal-stabilized camera doesn't move the camera left and right and up and down like optical image stabilization. It pans it left and right, tilts it up and down, and even rotates it on its own axis to follow and sometimes counteract your own natural hand movements. This is incredibly helpful when you need to pan your camera across a room or some other space or landscape. Normally, you have to control the movement yourself by physically moving your hand and or arm to try to smoothly move your phone or other camera across the shot. With the Osmo Pocket, when you make any move, the camera will slowly and smoothly catch up to your own movements while always keeping the camera level. It's not the easiest concept to describe with only words, but the best way I can describe it is that a stabilized gimbal and its sensors and gyros, similar to those found in smartphones, reads our own imperfect human movements and translates them into smooth camera movements. And that is the killer app of these gimbal devices. Physically, the Osmo Pocket is surprisingly small at just 5 inches tall and about 1 inch on all other sides. It almost looks like one of those old-fashioned candy bar phones from yesteryear. But don't let its small size fool you because it shoots pretty high-quality video for being such a tiny device. The gimbal-mounted camera sits at the top with a 1-inch touchscreen and separate shutter-slash-record and control buttons on the front of the device. Also, since it only weighs a few ounces, it feels pretty good to hold in your hand, 
even for longer recording sessions. Speaking of recording and time, the battery life on the Osmo Pocket is pretty decent at two and a half hours for continuously recording 1080p video. Your mileage will vary depending on what you're using it for and the shooting mode, and it's only about just over an hour to recharge the device, so it's not too bad. When you combine the incredibly precise gimbal on the Osmo Pocket with its electronics and software, you get some amazing new ways to creatively shoot video, and even still photos. Here's a few examples. In the default follow mode that follows your own natural hand movements, you can easily pan across a scene to capture what might be going on in the shot, or just take in some beautiful scenery. Move your hand too quickly or not quite evenly? Osmo Pocket smooths it out automatically. But what if you were actually trying to follow something? Or someone? Or a pet? Just double tap on your desired subject on the touchscreen on the Osmo Pocket, and the camera will now automatically follow them. The gimbal has a nearly 180-degree panning range and 90-degree tilt range to track subjects, so it will keep moving the camera even if you hold the device still. And what if you are your own camera crew and you need to be in the video? Triple-clicking the main button on the Osmo Pocket will enable selfie mode and point the camera towards you, and its facial recognition will automatically track you in the shot. So now... You can walk around, talk to the camera, interact with your surroundings, and not worry about trying to keep yourself centered in the frame. DJI makes a number of accessories for the Osmo Pocket too, including a selfie stick of sorts. So yeah, you get the idea. In addition to tracking subjects and yourself automatically, Osmo Pocket has a couple of other modes including FPV and Tilt Lock. FPV mode adjusts the response time of the gimbal to follow your own movements a little bit faster, which can create pretty stunning footage on those looping and crazy roller coasters. And when you might want a special fast whip effect of moving the camera from one point of view quickly to another. Tilt lock mode keeps the camera pointing forward no matter how you hold the Osmo Pocket itself. For shots where you might be just moving straight ahead or want to push the camera through a small space and hold the Osmo flat, this can come in really handy. The Osmo Pocket is really helpful for still shots too. Because the camera is on a gimbal, you can have it take a panorama shot for you, and it will do so perfectly because it is the one performing the movements. And for night shots that need a steady hand, the gimbal will automatically steady your hand for you, even for multi-second exposure times. Motion time-lapse and hyperlapse mode are also available for even more creative possibilities. One last thing about all of this gimbal-stabilized magic. The Osmo Pocket doesn't quite make everything perfectly buttery smooth because you're still holding the device. If you quickly move your hand from side to side or up and down, it will try to stabilize that through software, but the gimbal itself won't fix those lateral movements. But for everything else, yes, it's pretty darn magical. On board is an f2.0 12 megapixel camera with a 1 2 thirds CMOS sensor and 80 degree field of view, and it shoots video in 4K at up to 60 frames per second, or 1080p at up to 120 frames per second slow motion. 
While you can set the camera for fully automatic operation, you can also dial in all of the ISO, exposure, white balance, and other settings manually to your heart's content, which is really fantastic. And all of your footage and photos are captured on a micro SD card up to 256 gigs. You can also connect your iPhone or USB-C smartphone directly to the Osmo Pocket itself to get a larger view, automatic shot editing, and easier access to settings through its innovative connectors. Micro USB-based smartphones can connect via a cable. Accessories available for the Osmo Pocket let you take it underwater, mount it to a tripod, enable Wi-Fi, add physical controls for manually controlling pan and tilt, and a lot more. The DJI Osmo Pocket does retail for about $400, but when you combine the fact that it has a high-quality camera on board that's already integrated into its 3-axis precise gimbal, with all the shooting modes, the software, the touchscreen, and everything else, I think it's completely worth it, if you have a use case for it. And even if you don't have a use case for it, you'll probably create one after you buy it, because honestly, it's a lot of fun to shoot with. And now that brings us back a full 360 degrees to the beginning. So what's my use case for the Osmo Pocket? Well, roughly a year ago, in the fall of 2018, Allison and Steve came to visit the Phoenix area, and I was lucky to get to spend some quality time with them, as our meetings at CES usually were pretty brief because of the craziness of the show. Allison and Steve had only seen the Smarter Home Life headquarters where I live, in videos and photos, and of course I was really eager to show them all of this smart home tech here in my tiny little home. Steve followed Allison and I around with a camera as I explained a few things and gave a little tour of my place. One of the comments on Steve's nicely edited final production went something like this. As a viewer of Joe's videos for a number of years, I now understand more about his setup from watching this one video than all of his other videos. And that comment made me think, maybe I need to create my own tour of my place, but where I can really explain things in detail and be on camera while walking around. But, sigh, I don't have a camera crew to follow me around. So earlier this year, I tried out a gimbal that would give me all of the features that I'd want, and it would fit my existing iPhone 8 Plus. It's called the Zhiyun Smooth 4. But its object and face tracking abilities were pretty limited and didn't quite work as advertised, even though its other features worked really, really well. At the time, I just didn't feel it was necessary to buy another camera. But eventually, and mostly out of sheer frustration, I wound up buying the DJI Osmo Pocket. And it's one of a number of cameras and video tools that I'm using to create an in-depth, multi-part video series on not just the tech of this tiny smart home where I've lived for five years, but the complete rest of the story as well. And with any luck, it'll be released just before the U.S. Thanksgiving holiday on the Smarter Home Life YouTube channel. So keep an eye out for Tiny Smart Home Revealed, coming soon to a screen near you. I'm Jody Ganzik from Smarter Home Life, and I'd like to admit that I own way too many cameras. I don't know, Joe. I don't know if it's possible to own too many cameras. I love this review. It's fascinating. This sounds like a really cool gadget. You know, we've tried the little handheld gimbals for the phone, and we've done 
bigger uh, gimbal t- type things like the Steadicam kind of thing for Steve's big video camera. And they, they always seem like a hassle, but um, you're not the only person who's in love with this DJI Osmo. Uh, Rick Cartwright did a talk at MacStock and uh, he talked about how he's been using it. And then he showed it to us. I think it was during lunch at MacStock and it looked like a pretty slick device. And if both of you guys say it's really cool, it must be really cool. Thanks for sending that in, Joe. Always love your content. Looking forward to the full tour of the tiny home. I'm sorry, the smarter home. Okay, everybody, this is why I do the live show. You remember my awesome doorbell I told you about a little while ago? Anyway, in the live show, Kaylee found the exact doorbell that I found on the side of the road on Amazon, so I will be able to put that link in the show notes to the real one. Now, here's the downside. This one is $29, so it's got three, it does have three chimes and two doorbell buttons, so it's like way cooler than the other one. I mean, I'm thinking now these people got, they got what they needed. They had two chimes and a doorbell and they gave me the other one. So everybody wins. Maybe you could give away part of this if you buy it for $29 with my Amazon affiliate link. Anyway, the best part of this is it had the real instructions for how to get the doorbell sound to stick. So we have now changed the doorbell. And if Steve is ready, he will press it again. I'm telling you, you do not get podcasting like this from any other show. Thank you to Kaylee for this important research and helping us with this critical issue. Lately, Steve and I have started upgrading our phones and watches every single year. I'm starting to seriously question the strategy, though. While we can't afford to do this and it's great fun, in two cases, I don't think we've gotten our money's worth. Last year, we promised the kids that we'd flow down our iPhones 10 to them when we bought the iPhones 10s. Then we sold our old phones and everybody was happy. While the 10 was a huge upgrade for them, Lindsay was on a 7 and Nolan on a 6S, the upgrade from the 10 to the 10S for us was really minor. If I took the same photo with both phones and squinted real hard, I could say that the 10S was slightly better. Had I not promised the phones to the kids, I don't think I would have bought the 10S because I couldn't tell anything else apart on it. And yet, when we bought the iPhone's 11 Pro, the upgrade was huge from the iPhone XS. The camera is amazing and the battery life is insane, the two things I probably care about most. When the Apple Watch Series 5 was announced, I listened carefully for the enhancements from the Series 4 we already owned. The big thing they hyped was the always-on feature. I thought that sounded pretty nifty because it is slightly annoying to have to snap your wrist to wake it up. I'm not alone in that more than once I've used my nose to wake up my watch because like my hands are goopy or something. In the back of my brain, I think I figured there were probably a lot of other cool features the Series 5 had that I would be getting for the price of the bottom-of-the-line watch, 500 bucks for the small one with AppleCare. I was totally right to assume that. Guess what else it has? A compass. Yep, no longer will I have to use my phone as a compass like an animal. And that's the only difference between the 4 and the 5. When I got the new watch, I was super excited because, you know, the new shiny, right? But the first day I wore it, other than the awesome new band I got with it, I couldn't tell the difference from my old watch. The band is the Alaskan Blue Sports Band, by the way, and I loves it. I knew there were new watch faces, but guess what? Those same new watch faces are available on the Apple Watch Series 4. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. The new noise app that will alert you if you're being exposed to excessive noises on the Watch 5. 
It's very cool. It tells you that prolonged exposure greater than 30 minutes could cause permanent hearing loss. Dave Hamilton said on the Mac Geek Gab that his wife's watch notified her of just that when they were at a concert. Dave is crazy about protecting his hearing, so he immediately put in the earplugs he usually wears but had forgotten to put in. Guess what? The noise feature is also available on the Series 4. So, near as I can figure, the only mildly useful thing I got for my $500 was a watch that tells time all the time. But, well, that's cool. Until it got to be 9 at night the first day, and my watch was already in low power mode. That is decidedly not cool. Apple promised that the Apple Watch Series 5 would have the same 18-hour battery life as the Series 4. I know some of you are hollering at your devices that I'm asking too much because you know how much I work out and I'm always got running the workout on my watch. There aren't two hours a day with the enhanced heart rate sensor running because I'm doing a workout. That is a challenge to the battery life. But my Series 4 would have been between 20 and 30% left at the end of the day. So now let's recap. I have now paid $500 for a watch that tells me the time most of the day. I was disappointed. But I know when you get a new phone from Apple, things like first-time spotlighting index, indexing combined with how much we play with our devices can really compromise the battery during the first few days. So I hid my disappointment, just kept wearing the watch. The second day, it shut completely down at 9.30 p.m. Well, that's just great. Now, I really hate to say the phrase, lots of people are having the same problem, because with the vastness of the sales of Apple's devices, you can pretty much always say that about any problem you're having. But when 9to5Mac did a poll on Series 5 battery life and nearly 70% of the people said it was worse than they expected, I figured this problem might be far bigger than just me. After four days of this nonsense, I figured I'd call AppleCare. I had no expectation going into this that I would get any kind of satisfaction, but I wanted to challenge them to convince me not to march back to the store to return this watch. I have never simply returned an Apple product. Let's talk about what I like to refer to now as the phone call of sadness, trademark pod feet 2019. I'll skip a lot of the detail, but I'll give you some of the salient points. My main contact at Apple support has been senior advisor, Carrie. Carrie is not my little friend. Carrie suggested I turn off the always on feature. Okay, so I paid $500 for a watch that has a compass in it. No, Carrie, I won't even run that test for you. If it helps, what would we have learned? Do you expect me to keep the always-on feature turned off? She said she was going to send me a support article about how to manage my battery on the watch. I asked her what kind of advice was in that article. She said it suggests things like, don't run the heart rate monitor while you're doing a workout. Wait, what? That's the main reason I have the watch. But anyway, that's not why she isn't my little friend, Carrie. She told me she'd call me back at a specific time and they did not call me back at that time. This became a pattern of behavior. Eventually, she did call, and she asked me to do something pretty interesting. Engineering wanted me to install a profile on my phone that would pull diagnostics from the watch. It would run for 24 hours, and then she would call me back to get the results. But of course, she didn't call me back on time. Now, here's another annoyance. Every call, she would try to do a screen share to me. Every time she tried to screen share to me, I would start to move my cursor to the button to accept, and before I could get there, it would say, Apple supported disconnected. She would try this exactly three times, every time we talked, and then she would send me to a webpage where I had to enter a code, it would download a little app that I had to run, and then she could connect. This happened every single time we worked together. 100% repeatable failure of the tool from Apple. 
Remember me talking about that tool that uh, was not 64-bit, one piece of it? This is that tool, by the way. The next time she didn't call me back on time, I hollered at her about that. She said we had to run the test again because engineering said no data was collected for some reason. We installed the profile again and again, and I had to wait for an appointment time where she would be late. By the way, each time we connected was around three to four days apart because of her schedule. The next time we were supposed to connect, she never called at all. I sent an email to her asking her why she was again disrespecting the customer by not calling. I got a call back from Apple, but was from a different senior advisor. Turns out this woman was only calling me because she saw my email come through to Carrie where I was yelling at Carrie for not calling me. Turned out Carrie wasn't even coming into the office that day as she was out sick. Isn't that awesome that I never would have known that if I hadn't written to her myself? Great processes, Apple. Now, I tried really hard not to take it out on the woman who did call on me. But guess what the report was back from engineering? The data didn't, didn't come through, so we needed to put a profile on your phone to take data from your watch for 24 hours and send it, send it to engineering. Uh, you know, this is now the third time I will have done this. I pointed out to the woman that there's a famous saying, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. I told her I was done, and I said goodbye, and I hung up. I did get another letter back from Carrie, who wants me to get together with her again. I haven't answered her yet. I really went through this four or five hours of working with Apple to kind of take one for the team. Like I said, I never really expected them to fix anything for me, but I did hope that by me putting in this time, perhaps I could contribute data that would help Apple fix the root cause of these battery problems with the Series 5 Apple Watch. But there comes a time when even I haven't got the patience or time to continue to play along. And guess what? I also haven't told her that over the two and a half weeks we fooled around with this, my battery life has finally improved. I've had a couple of nights where my battery had 20 plus percent left at the end of the night, followed by one where it went into lower power, low power mode at 10 p.m. So maybe the watchOS updates plus the 127 different iOS 13 updates we've gotten have actually made a difference. You know what, though? I put on the new California watch face, I colored it to match my Alaskan blue band, and I added my complications to it, and now it feels like a new watch. If you've got a Series 4, you've been eyeing the Series 5, get yourself a new watch band and a new watch face and save yourselves $500. You can still use your nose to tell the time. Well, that's going to wind us up to the, for this week. Many, many thanks to Joe and Jill. That was really, really fun. I just had a blast listening to both of those. I hope you did too. Don't forget to send in your dumb questions. I do have a dumb question queued up here that I'm going to take on soon. You can send that, comments and suggestions to my email at allison at podfeet.com. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at podfeet. Now remember, in anything you're looking for, anything you want to find at podfeet.com is going to start with podfeet.com slash whatever you're looking for. You're looking for how to become a Patreon? Podfeet.com slash Patreon. Looking for our Facebook group? Podfeet.com slash Facebook. Looking for our Slack community? Podfeet.com slash Slack. And by the way, Bart hangs out in there and he answers questions about security, so that's a really great place to go. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time. Join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.